But let's open them to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Please find Acts, chapter 17. We're just one week away from beginning a new series in the book of Matthew. And there we'll see the whole panorama of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to save sinners. And, of course, he found sinners from all different walks of life. And there was not one person that Jesus encountered who did not need the gospel of Christ. We're going to talk about Jesus' ministry over the coming months. And I'm really thankful that we have another opportunity that we can go through a gospel account. Matthew was one of those disciples that was chosen by Jesus as an apostle and one of four men who was chosen to write the accounts of Jesus' life. Today, though, I'm going to preach about the gospel, and we're, we're not going to speak from the book of Matthew. Rather, we're going to look in the book of Acts, and we find here one of the most interesting accounts in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was also a person who met men from all different walks of life, different people who needed the gospel. And in this particular scripture that we're going to read today, we'll find that there are six different types of people that Paul talked with that had different attitudes about his message. There were different approaches that they had to life. Each one of these groups needed salvation. Each one of them needed the message that Paul preached through the gospel. Well, this is the story of Paul's visit to the ancient city of Athens. I'm only going to read part of this account, and I would encourage you to read the rest of these verses later. There are many sermons that can be preached from this text, and we don't have time to go into everything tonight. There's much more this morning. Uh, There's much more for us to learn, so read this after the services today. Let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're looking in Acts chapter 17, and just before we, we read the text that you have on the screen, I want you to look up just a few verses here, the verses 10 and 11. I've been asked many times, where do we get the name Berean Baptist Church? Our members, of course, I think most of you know the answer to that question, but if you're visiting today, you may be wondering, where does that name Berean come from? Well, we take it from Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. It says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. Well, that's where the name comes from. Who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And we call our church Berean because we want to be a church that has the character of these people in the city of Berea. They searched the scriptures. They studied the word of God. And that's what we want to do. We want to learn the doctrines of God's word and we want to be good students of the Bible. Now, let's go down here to verse number 15, where our text begins today. Uh, Acts 17, verse number 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus saying... 
May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I passed by, and I beheld your devotions, and I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We are once again thankful for each person who's come to hear your word. Lord, help us that we would be good students of the word that we would learn today. And we would see these different attitudes about the gospel of Christ. And may we very clearly understand just who it is exactly that needs this gospel. Bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in the fall of 2003, we started a two-year study of the book of Acts. And I remember when I came to this particular chapter that I was thinking about what it must have been like for Paul to enter into the city of Athens. Athens was a magnificent city. There was beautiful architecture. There were massive buildings that were there. Today, if you go to Athens, you can see the ruin of one of the greatest temples of the ancient world, which is the Parthenon. It was dedicated to the goddess Athena. We have a picture of that for you today, if you'd like to see that. This is how it looks today. And this is the area where the Apostle Paul went to preach the gospel of Christ. The only way that I could think to compare this as I was looking at this text was to think about the first time that I went to Washington, D.C. About 30 years ago was the first time that I was in the D.C. area. And I remember driving into the city, and what I saw there were the massive government buildings, visited the Supreme Court, and the uh, Capitol building and the White House and all the places of government there. And uh, seeing all of that, I I stood there and looked at that as American with great pride, Uh, just to be a part of such a great country. And I stood in awe as I walked around the different monuments that were in the city, that great monument to, to George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. And I have to tell you at that moment, I think that I was prouder to be an American than at any other time in my life. On a purely physical level, that might have been how Paul felt when he went into the city of Athens. It was a magnificent city, and there were many cities that were built in such a way during Paul's time. But Athens was special because it, it was just uh, had so much history. There was so much magnificence there. But the most notable thing for Paul when he walked into that city was not the physical aspects of it. Paul did not come to Athens in order to look at the sights and to think about the great things that men could build there. The major thing that struck Paul as he entered into that place was the idolatry of the city. He was a missionary of Jesus Christ. And as he looked over that great city, the thing that struck him most is that here is a mission field. Here are people that are lost and they're dying. They don't know Jesus as their Savior These are people who need to be reached with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Scripture says in verse number 16 that his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And in the original language of Scripture, those words simply mean full of idols. 
It was a city that was full of idols. There was one ancient writer who said that it was easier to find a god in the city of Athens than it was to find a man there. And so there were idols everywhere. They adorned the buildings. They were in all the public places, in the squares. Everywhere that you went, you would find all these different idols that the people of Athens worshipped. And when Paul saw this, the scripture says his heart was stirred in him. And that means that he was aroused by it. He was indignant over it. And really, he was irritated about what he saw because what he saw in the city was an abuse of God's glory. Here was a massive, vibrant, interesting city, but it was enveloped with spiritual darkness. People didn't know Christ. Now, we can't help but be reminded of what Paul said in the book of Romans He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because when they knew God, they worshipped him not as God. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And that is exactly what Paul found in the city of Athens. But he also found something else there. He found an altar where there was no idol. There was a pedestal standing there where there was no image on that pedestal. And this was a God that they had set up that they really didn't know who it was. So they just left the place blank. And all their efforts to cover all of the bases, to make sure that they had all the gods included, they just set up another altar there with the inscription to the unknown God. And so Paul seized upon that opportunity to tell them this is the God who is above all gods. This is a God whom you ignorantly worship. This is one that you don't know about, and I want to tell you exactly who he is. And the God that Paul was talking about was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of all gods. He's supreme. He reigns over all. All of these other gods were nothing but stone, idols made of man's imagination, but Jesus Christ is the one true living God. That's the message of the gospel. But it's interesting how how many religious people that we find in the city of Athens. And Paul wasn't talking to atheists here. These were people who had their religion, very religious people. The only problem is they all worship the wrong God. In America today, we have many people that have their religion. They have their gods, but many people are worshiping the wrong God. And I want to ask you today, the question of the message today is, who needs the gospel? There are many people in America who have religion, they have some kind of God, but they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And the Bible tells us very clearly that all who don't know Jesus Christ will perish without him. So today we want to look at some different people that Paul encountered in the city of Athens. They had different, had wide-ranging views of life, and every one of them needed the gospel of Christ. Now, first of all today, who needs the gospel? Number one is those who already have religion. 
People who already have religion need the gospel. Paul had a method when he visited faraway places in the first century. There were people in that time, Jews that had been scattered all over the Roman Empire. And in every city, the Jews had established synagogues. It was Paul's method to first go into those synagogues to begin to preach because there he found people that already knew the Scriptures. They had copies of the Old Testament Scriptures. They were acquainted with those and they were studying those. And so in Acts chapter 17, we find that Paul follows his custom, or Acts 15 rather, no, Acts 17, verse 17, I should say. He follows his custom. He goes into Athens, and the first place that he enters into is the Jewish synagogue. And the Bible says he was there disputing with the Jews, arguing with him there. Now, these are people who were regular worshipers. They're people who do attend worship services faithfully. They read the Scriptures. They studied them religiously, you might say. They knew all about the Scripture. There was plenty of form and function in what they were doing. But what they didn't know is the true salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. They have the Scriptures, but they couldn't find Jesus in the Scriptures. So Paul targeted those people as candidates for the gospel of Christ. Although they were very religious and they were very dedicated, and yet they were blinded by what we might call institutional religion. They had their ceremonies, they had their forms, they had their functions, they had the things that they went through, but they were blinded by all of that to the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so it was religion itself. It was religion that actually kept them away from Jesus. If I could compare that to people in America today, to the religious people who are in America today, I would say that these are like people who go to church, they have their credentials, They've been baptized, they've been confirmed, they can say their rosaries, they've made their confessions, but they have no idea what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And so it's the outward religion that they love. It's all those little things that they do, the candles that they light, the ceremonies they go through. That's what interests them the most. And what happens is they really don't have an inner change of heart that takes place when you put your personal faith in Christ. I've heard people say, well, I want to be a Christian. Yes, I want to be a Christian, but I don't care anything about being born again. I don't want to be born again. And friends, I'm telling you, Jesus said that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is not found in our baptism. It's not found in anybody's sacraments. It's not found in in church membership. You can be listed on every church roll from here to the East Coast, and it will not make you even one inch closer to heaven. Salvation is only in the gospel of Christ. And so people are very interested in the form and the function. And some will say, well, I was raised in church. I have gone to church all of my life. Grandpa was a preacher. Makes no difference. Salvation is a personal thing, and it doesn't come from what you do or or how that you were raised. So Paul met plenty of these kinds of people. They love religion more than they love God, and their minds have been blinded by all of the rituals that they go through. And so these are people who need the gospel just as much as a pure pagan who cares nothing at all about God. These people need the gospel, and that's because religion will not save anybody. Religion never saves, and religious people need the gospel as much as anyone else. Then there's another group of people that Paul encountered here. Number two, who needs the gospel? Those who already respect God. 
In verse number 17, there's another class of people mentioned. There are the Jews that are in the synagogue, and it says there were devout persons. These are people that are not converts to Judaism. They didn't quite fit in with the Jews, and they didn't fit in with the pagans. They're people who just recognize that there's something seriously wrong with society. Things are going wrong here. They had some kind of God as well, but really what was most interesting to them is they're fed up with all the moral decadence that was taking place in their city. These are moral people. They aren't quite sure where they should turn. They just know that there's something that needs to be done about it. They aren't anti-religion. They don't care if you're religious. That's all right with them. They're not anti-religious at all. They just don't know what they should do. And there are people like that also in our neighborhoods. They're what you call good sinners. I know that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good sinner. But these are people that think that they stand just a little bit above everybody else because they're just pretty good moral people. Don't do any really terrible things and just good people, good sinners, at least in their own eyes. And that makes up a huge class of people in America. I mean, if I could just tell you the conversations that that I've had with people concerning the gospel... And they tell me, well, I'm a pretty good person. I I don't really do any bad things. I don't have a lot of bad habits. I'm just really trying to do the very best that I can. And they're always comparing themselves to somebody that they know that's worse than they. Well, if you're in that category today, you also need the gospel. The book of Romans says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so God's not interested in your comparative analysis. There's only one comparison that God is interested in, and that's how do you measure up to what God has written in his word? How do you measure up to that? And so if you're a person that you can honestly say that you've never broken even one of God's commandments, if you can say that you've never lied, you've never been guilty of pride, you've never said a curse word, you've never desired something that someone else has, you've never been jealous of anyone... You've never thought a bad thought. You've given God glory in all things. If you can say that you've done all of that, then maybe I would say, well, uh, there's a case for you then. But upon the authority of God's word, there is no such person like that. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. Jesus came to keep God's laws perfectly because he is the author of those laws. And what he came to do, to, to do was what you could not do in order that you might receive his righteousness by faith. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, it says, "...being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood." to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let me make those verses very simple for you. It's not your goodness that will ever get you into heaven. You can make all the comparisons that you want. You can compare yourself to any person, and you may think that you're pretty good, But pretty good does not cut it with God. Perfection is what God requires. And perfection is only found in Jesus Christ. You cannot justify yourself. Only God can justify you. 
And it comes by your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's a penalty, the Bible says, that's been placed upon disobedience to God's law. The penalty is death. The penalty is the fires of hell. And what Jesus came to do was to take that penalty for you. So you may respect God. You may not be anti-religious. You might be pretty good in your own eyes. But like all people, like all people, if you're in that condition today, you also need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who needs the gospel of Christ? You do. You're a candidate also. And Paul found those kinds of people in the city of Athens. Now, thirdly, there's another group we find here who also needs the gospel. Those who only want reward. Now, notice in verse number 17, Paul disputed with those that were in the market. Now, these are not religious Jews. They're not the people of the synagogue. They're not the devout persons that we spoke of just now. They're not people that are looking for answers and people that are fed up with the decadence of society. These are just average citizens. These are your average citizens who don't think very much about God. Now, one of the things that they're very interested in is financial affairs. Their God is the God of materialism. I could make a little bit of a play on words here. There are people today in America who are in the market. And I mean, they're, they're, they're in the stock market. They're in the bond markets. They're in the insurance market. They're, they're in all the investment markets. Their God is actually the dollar. And say so they, don't, they don't pay very much attention to what goes on. I mean, they really don't care whether things are moral or, or immoral. That's not their concern because to them, the only thing that is actually immoral is something that takes from their pocketbook. I mean, if it affects them in a diverse way, if it affects their money, then that's surely an immoral thing. And that's what they're concerned about. Now, I'm going to say something now that, that some of you may not like. I'm going to stop for just a second. I'm going to talk about people who are saved, people who have heard the gospel, they have believed the gospel, but they have set up another God in their lives. And this God is the God of their pocketbook. And what matters to them is not where is America going morally today? Their biggest concern is where is America going economically today? I talked a little bit about it last week, but these are people that can ignore issues like murder of unborn babies. They can ignore gay rights and same-sex marriages, and they'll put into power those people who have a history of favoring every moral indecency that you can think of. And they do it because their pocketbooks have been affected. And I would tell you, shame on American Christians who have made reward their God. Shame on American Christians who are part and party to murder. And friends, this is not a political speech that I'm making today. This is a biblical speech that I'm making to you. And when you can come and refute what I'm saying today with the word of God, I'm willing to sit down and listen to what you have to say. But let me go on here. It's not just people that are interested in the stock markets that I'm speaking of today. We also see a pseudo-church that's grown up in America that has materialism at its heart. There is no gospel in it. There aren't any warnings about hell there. There's no preaching about man's sinfulness and nothing about the need for man to bow his knee knee before a holy and righteous God. But rather, in these places, the preaching is all about you. 
Preaching's not about God. It's, it's, uh, it's all about you. Now, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today. I'm talking about the TV evangelists that I'm not afraid to name. People like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes and Kenneth Copeland and all their like. They are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of materialism. It says nothing about following Jesus. There's nothing in there about taking up a cross of sacrifice and going after Jesus Christ. There's nothing in there like we read in the book of Philippians where Paul says, for it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's not in their preaching. Joel Osteen's idea of godliness is that godliness is a means to gain wealth. And so it's a way of honoring you, honoring a man instead of God. It does not glorify God. It's a gospel about glorifying your desires. What do you want out of life? Well, is there a gospel in Joel Osteen's ministry? Let me read to you just a moment here a review of Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. I know most of you have seen this book. Maybe some of you own it. The reviewer is reviewing the book, and he comes down to the end of the review, and he's examining the different things that Joel Osteen has to say So he comes down to the end of the review, and he says, In closing my review, I want to say, Oh, I nearly forgot. Joel Osteen does share the plan of salvation with the readers of his book. The reason I nearly forgot was because it seems Osteen nearly forgot too. His gospel presentation, as it might be loosely defined by some, spans one half of one page and is neatly tucked on the very last page of the book after the end notes. It is not even given the courtesy of a page number in the table of contents. Additionally, Osteen's gospel presentation contains no scripture references, no indication of who Jesus Christ is, no mention of his death on the cross or the necessity of his death in the place of guilty sinners, no teaching about the importance of Christ's sinless life, nothing about his resurrection from the dead, no reference to the grace of God, and no plea for the reader to respond by trusting Christ's work. Who needs the gospel? People who believe that need the gospel. Folks, that gospel is a cursed gospel. Paul said, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, he says, even if an angel from heaven came to you and preached you another gospel than what we preach, let him be accursed. So if you've been listening to that kind of junk, you need to shut it off. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who needs the gospel? those who are interested in the God of materialism. And there were plenty of those people in Athens, and friends, there are plenty of those people in America today. Now, number four, who needs the gospel? Those who love revelry instead of God. Those who love revelry instead of God. Now, in verse 18, rather, we find another group of people called the Epicureans. These are people that we call the pleasure seekers of life. Ancient Greece was influenced by many different philosophers, and there were two types of philosophy that were particularly prevalent at the time of the Apostle Paul. These were the Epicureans and the Stoics. One one group's a follower of a man by the name of Epicurus, and the other by a man named Zeno. But the Epicureans are followers of Epicurus, and they lived about 300 years before Christ. 
Paul spoke about them negatively in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. There he was speaking about the resurrection of the dead. And he said, if there is no resurrection, then we can just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that was the philosophy of the Epicureans. Live it up right now. Do everything that you want to do right now because there is no tomorrow, there is no afterlife. So Epicurus believed that the world happened by chance. This world that we live in was an accident. If there is a God or gods, then those gods are disinterested in the affairs of men. And so man is left to discover life on his own, to discover the truth. He indulges in the pleasures of life. There's nothing after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no reward. There's no punishment. There's nothing after you die. Where have we heard that before? Where where have we heard that kind of philosophy before? All you really need to do is walk down Rona Park Expressway, take a right on Snyder Lane, and go up to Rancho Catati High School. Go a little bit further. Go on down Snyder Lane a little bit further and go to East Catati, make a left there, and go to Sonoma State University. And you'll find the very same philosophy of 2,000 years ago, and really even it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the very same type of philosophy is being taught to American public school students today. What is that? Evolution. Evolution is the heart and the soul of Epicurean philosophy. Now, would you look at our text verse again, verse number 18? Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I want you to notice something. Do you see those words, strange gods? And what that actually means there, translated, is wild, outlandish, and unbelievable. Wild, outlandish, and unbelievable. That's what they said about Paul and what he was preaching. Now, here you have these Greeks. They've got a God for everything that's known to man. I mean, they've made gods of themselves. They've made gods of their emotions. They've made every kind of weird-looking concoction that you can even imagine, and these are the gods that they worship. But they look at the Apostle Paul, and they listen to him talk about Jesus, and they say, your beliefs are wild, they're outlandish, they are totally unbelievable. The evolutionist believes the world started from a speck of dust that exploded into the entire universe. And he believes that the intricacies of man that we know today came about by random chance and eventually this complex organism that we call man came out of all these random happenings. He believes that while his own scientific evidence tells him that there is no system that ever tended towards order, they all tend towards chaos, and yet he believes that this this organism of man What we are today, we just came out of practically nothing. And the reason they do it, because they don't want to admit to the reality of God. Now let me ask you, which is more fantastic for you to believe? Which is more unbelievable? The evolutionist accepts by his faith something that's far greater to believe, far more impossible to believe than what I believe by Jesus Christ and by God creating this entire world. It's far more fantastic. And so what do we see? Well, we see that the Greeks of Paul's day were not the only philosophical whizzes. 
Our courts in America have enshrined that philosophy by judicial fiat, and they have made that their God. What did it do for the Greeks and Romans? What did this kind of philosophy do for the Greeks and the Romans? You want me to tell you? It ended up in total failure. Moral failure. The the empire fell over its moral decadence because they did not recognize who God truly is. And friends, let me tell you, America today is headed right down the same path. We have violence in our schools. There is no such thing as a moral absolute that's taught in our schools today. They teach our kids about homosexuality, and they tell you if you object to that, then you need a psychiatrist because you have an inordinate disease of homophobia. Every lifestyle is tolerated in America today, but a lifestyle of true Christianity. So America says, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, anything goes. There's nothing really wrong with us. Live it up for tomorrow we die. And folks, they got the last part exactly right. Tomorrow they die. And when they die, they go into the everlasting fires of hell. Now, what goes with that kind of philosophy? It's that moral decadence. It's the fires of hell. The grave is not the end. You know, there's some people who say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I'll take my chances. I like what I'm living. I like the way I'm doing things. I'll just take my chance that when I die, everything is going to turn out all right. Friend, you're somebody who needs the gospel. Because this is not a chance that you take. This is not gambling. There is no chance involved. This is a sure thing. It's absolutely sure. If you die without Jesus, you will spend eternity in hell. There's no gambling there. You do what you're doing right now and you don't receive Christ, you end up in hell. There's no gamble at all. And these are the kinds of people who need the gospel of Christ. Who needs the gospel? Those who think that this life is all there is. Now, number five, who needs the gospel? Those who want to rationalize God. Another group that Paul met in Athens was the Stoics. As I said, the Stoics were followers of a man by the name of Zeno, and he lived about the same time of Epicurus. His basic teachings were those of pantheism and fatalism. Pantheism is basically the belief of the New Age movement today, which tells you that there's really nothing new in the New Age movement at all. It goes all the way back to the Greeks, who thought that God was everything, and everything is God. Pantheism is not defined, does not define a single god or, or many gods, but rather they claim that God is simply the universe or God is nature and that when you die, you just go back to be one with God. You're absorbed into the universe. You become one with nature. These are people who also believed in fatalism. Nobody's controlling anything. There is no such thing as good or evil. Everything happens just because it happens. You know, I've heard that people say about us because we believe in predestination. They say, well, you believe in fatalism. There's nothing further from the truth than that, nor misunderstood that someone says that predestination is the same as fatalism. They are not the same. Fatalism depends on no one. There is no design. There is no purpose. Everything happens randomly. Everything happens chaotically. I'm glad that there is a God of plan and purpose. 
A one of design and predestination because if there is not, then I have no hope. I'm left here to save myself. I'm wandering aimlessly around on this sphere that's hurtling through space. I don't know what's going to happen. But there is a God who has a design. He has a purpose. And that's why we have a Savior today. His purpose, his design for creating the world was to send Jesus Christ into that world to save us from our sins. And so without God's design, there is no purpose. Now, what does rationalism actually do? Rationalism leads to self-sufficiency. The only one who can help me is me, and so what I'll do is I'll consume myself with self-control and with discipline. Now, this is the opposite of the Epicureans, because the Epicureans say, well, anything goes. I'll just do anything that I want to do. Rationalism, rather, leads us in a different direction. It leads us to to discipline and asceticism. And so what rationalism will actually lead you to is into atheism. I am my own God. I make the difference in my life. It's me who makes all the difference. I am the God. I am the master of my fate. That's what William Ernest Henley wrote on his deathbed as a confession of his atheism. He wrote a poem entitled Invictus, and the last lines of his poem say, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Invictus is Latin for unconquered. And this was William Henley's attempt to shake his fist in the face of God and say to him, It matters not what your word says. It does not matter what the Bible says. There is no punishment. I am not concerned about it. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And God, you cannot do anything about it. At this very hour, William Ernest Henley knows who really is the master of his fate. One of these days, his name will be called at the great white throne judgment. A voice will boom out and will say, William Ernest Henley, come to the bar. And there won't be any arguments. There won't be any excuses made there. The scripture says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Listen, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Who needs the gospel? These people need the gospel. Hell's gaping wide open for these kinds of people today. And they'll go there unless they believe and they're saved. There's no hope without Jesus. The very hell that they say does not exist will gobble them up in eternal torment. So these are the kinds of people that Paul met in Athens and Same kinds of people are around us today. Who needs the gospel? Every last person on the face of this earth needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice one last group. We we didn't get this far with our reading, so you have your Bibles open there. Go down to verse number 32. Acts 17, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Now, in the previous verse there, Paul had preached about judgment, 
talked about the judgment of God, and he says that God confirmed that by raising Jesus from the dead. And you might remember, we talked about that in our study of 1 Corinthians. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon the work of Christ, and by his resurrection, he says that he is going to judge the world. He raised Christ from the dead, and that's confirmation. He's going to judge the world. The resurrection is that confirmation. Now, when they heard the resurrection, it says some of them mocked. And some of them said, now bring him back another time. We want to hear him again. But there are others, though. Look look at verse number 33. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some believed. So let me ask you finally today, who needs the gospel of Christ? Those who want a relationship with God. Those who want a relationship with God. Some believed. And the only way that you will ever get a relationship with God is to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You know, there are many people today who say that they want a relationship with God. But what they really mean is they want a God who matches their relationships. I I remember I was talking to a lady about salvation, and she said to me, she said, "I, I consider myself to be a very spiritual person. And I knew how she was defining that. Spiritual to her meant, I believe in God, but he's a God that I've made for myself. He's a God that I want him to be. He's the God who fits what I like to do. He's the God who fits... My lifestyle. This is where we find about this God, the true God. He must match every aspect of what the Word of God reveals about him. So what this lady said that was really no different than what thousands of people in America and thousands of people in the city of Athens were saying. We have our gods. We have our idols. We're very spiritual people. Friends, there's only one God. And this one God is found in the pages of the Bible. He is the one true living God, the one who created all things by his plan and by his purpose. He is the living God who came to this earth as a man. He lived here for 33 years upon this earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he gave his life for us. Men did not kill him. He gave up his life willingly to save us from our sins. And so Jesus, the God-man, went to those torturous hours on the cross of Calvary and he paid the penalty of sin for everyone who would believe in him. He died, they buried him, and three days later he arose from the grave. The thing I want you to understand today is that Jesus did not come to save good people. There are no good people. Jesus came to save sinners, and that includes you and me. So who needs the gospel? I want you to write it on your listening sheet today. Who needs the gospel? You do. Don't write you do. Put your name in those blanks. Who needs the gospel? Your name goes here. Every person needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, I hope sincerely today that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior because that's the only way you'll have an eternal relationship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word today. 
We thank you, Lord, for the great Apostle Paul who opened up the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners, to people who needed to know how to be saved from their sins. And Lord, I just pray that you might open some sinner's heart today to the message that I preached. That some sinner here today will realize the only way to go to heaven, the only way to have this relationship with God is to put personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died to pay for our sins. We cannot do it ourselves. Only Jesus can pay sin's penalty for us. I just pray, Lord, someone will trust him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.